The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Well, warm welcome to a Tuesday's edition of Scorebox with myself, Steve Sedgwick, and Arabile Gamedi. Good morning to you. Good morning again, Steve. Should we give them some headlines? I think let's do it. It's probably time, isn't it? Okay, so U.S. equity markets kicking off the final week of August in the green as traders on Wall Street try to regain ground ahead of a key inflation report later this week. The U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo opening the door for dialogue with China, announcing formal working groups to try and help ease trade tensions, but maintaining red lines on national security. We are not compromising or negotiating in matters of national security, period. But this is meant to be a dialogue where we increase transparency and where we are clear about what we are doing as it relates to export control enforcement. UK grocery inflation cools, falling to the lowest level in almost a year, relieving some of the pressure on the Bank of England to keep raising interest rates. And BYD keeps its crown, cementing itself as China's biggest selling auto brand after profits at the EV maker jumped 200% in the first half. It was a month of losses, or has been a month of losses for the month of August across the U.S., but regaining some ground is pretty much what we're trying to see the markets then pretty much do out on Wall Street. So six-tenths of a percent higher went the Dow Jones Industrial, for example, gaining that 200 points, two-thirds of a, of a percentage point up as well for the S&P 500, while the tech-heavy Nasdaq also managing to get some gains, eight-tenths of a percent higher there. August, well, all of these have shed either 3.4% or 45 and 2.8% respectively. So giving you a clear indication, then it has been a down time. Is September going to follow through uh, with a similar time as well? It's supposed to be a, a, a quietened period, but of course the data front is the one that we'll look out for. Today, of course, we are expecting the July job openings numbers. The expectation there are around 9.465 million is the anticipation for that number. That's easing slightly from the June number, though, uh, and that's where we expect things to be. The Nasdaq reporting a fifth positive day out of six. Uh, so very interesting, the likes of Meta, Apple, and even Tesla only managing to eke out a few gains there, while NVIDIA did manage to add 1.8%. So that's the look at the U.S. markets generally positive across there onto the uh, treasuries then which also have been a little bit higher the question mark is does this continue actually to go a little bit higher then thus far we see the two-year even dip just below that five percent mark then um, after hitting that 5.1 percent figure that was its highest level since the 6th of july actually so now it's dipped off uh, ever so slightly with the 10-year now at 4.1922 having had 4.36 as well earlier last week. Treasury yields were lower, ten, yeah, the 10-year even down three basis points just yesterday alone. Just quiz, quickly as well, if we stay on the lower side of the spectrum, the one-year actually briefly had a higher 5.53%. That's the highest level since the 25th of August 2000. 
So interesting to note out on the shortened end of the spectrum uh, as well. On to the dollar crosses then. Well, the dollar has been uh, weakening uh, so ever so slightly then this week, especially after Jackson Hole. Fed chair still maintaining that stance that more interest rate increases could certainly be on the way. So the currencies have been very interesting. But the dollar did hit a brief nine-month high against the Japanese yen. Let's remember that as well then. 145 in September last year is when the Japanese government actually intervened or was, there was rather intervention in that market then. So could there be potential intervention to shore up the yen at 146.48? Uh, is something we could certainly be looking towards. But dollar is overall very tentative as traders head towards some of that economic data. And here we are then when we look at the Asia-Pacific markets, an uptick across the board then. Only the Nikkei perhaps losing out of, uh, or rather gaining out of step with some of the others, uh, around uh, three-tenths of a percent higher. The ASX in Australia around half a percent to the goods uh, as well. The Hang Seng, nearly 2% on, uh, on, uh, on the up there, should I say. The Nikkei then gain, leading some of the gains yesterday to date, not necessarily so much. Japan's July jobless numbers coming in at 2.7%. That's higher than the anticipated figure of 2.5%. So we'll touch on that as well. Oh, the Hang Seng is, as we noted, leading those gains, Steve. Super duper, Arabile. Uh, of course, as you say, a lot of big data to come later on this week. It's just an honorable mention to the Jolts figures. I think they are very, very interesting in today's figures will probably show actually the uh, the number of available jobs compared to the number of people looking for jobs actually continues to see a lower number as well. I'll do a bit more detail on that a little bit later on. Uh, U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo has announced Washington and Beijing will launch a series of working groups aimed at easing trade tensions and export controls. The announcement comes as part of Raimondo's visit to Beijing, where she's holding talks with Chinese officials and U.S. businesses. Raimondo said the new group would bring together both state officials and business leaders and that she would work alongside American companies trying to operate in China. Now, speaking before a delegation of business leaders, Raimondo promised the U.S. would be transparent in its trade decisions, but did stress it would make no compromise on national security. We agreed to launch an export control enforcement information exchange that will serve as a platform, we hope, to reduce misunderstandings of U.S. national security policies. Uh, the United States is committed to being transparent about our export control enforcement strategy. I want to be clear, we are not compromising or negotiating in matters of national security, period. But this is meant to be a dialogue where we increase transparency and where we are clear about what we are doing as it relates to export control enforcement. Well, let's get to Sam, who's been analyzing this as well. I mean, fine words, Sam. It's great to have transparency. It's great to have everyone on the same page and knowing uh, what the issues are and what the U.S. is going to do without any ambiguity. But she's not offering much in terms of an olive branch in terms of those bans on investments, uh, bans on transfer technologies, which I think the Chinese were hoping for, but perhaps didn't expect to get. 
Yeah, and that certainly seems to be the problem here, Steve. A very good morning to you that the Chinese, while they do see these sort of new lines of communication and exchanges as a sign of goodwill, they are still very much sceptical about some of the sincerity in these negotiations. Uh, they really want to see, of course, the US uh, putting their money where their mouth is, so to speak. And so I think it really just seems to be a case of what we heard there of let's agree to disagree for now and then we can sort of stabilise the relationship relationship so things don't get out of control anymore um, because we do need to keep in mind that Gina Raimondo is perhaps the final high-level U.S. senior official to actually visit Beijing before a potential meeting between Presidents Biden and Xi uh, potentially down the road, uh, perhaps in November on the sidelines of the APEC summit uh, in San Francisco. So they do need to sort of improve the relationship somewhat and sort of clear the air um, and uh, improve the mood, you could say. And so what they've done, as you heard there, is a couple of things. They've agreed to continue to hold these regular discussions on the trade and investment issues. So setting up working groups now on commercial interests. And that is despite some of the criticism from the Republican lawmakers that this could lead to more concessions. Now, this does uh, come at a vice ministerial level. As you heard there, it's going to include US and Chinese businesses as well. There does seem to have been some degree of consultation on their part. And so this seems to be trying to deliver on that. Those um, discussions will start in early 2024. But the other thing that they agreed on, which actually started today, was discussions. They call it uh, an information exchange mechanism. Basically, they're just going to keep talking about these export controls and try to sort of clear the air in terms of some of the transparency and uh, inform each other as to where they certainly stand uh, on national security because China seems to have a bit of a problem with how they are sort of using this national security and playing this card because they don't believe that China's domestic chip ambitions, there seems to be a feeling in Beijing, um, is a matter of national security over in the US, nor is China's ambitions and what we're seeing over in the South China Sea. That certainly seems to be one of the the examples. And so I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens now behind closed doors beyond the smiles and the handshakes um, as to what they actually do in terms of concrete steps. And that was certainly something that the US economist Stephen Roach was speaking about on US programming overnight as well. Um, he didn't think that uh, this um, shows any sort of, uh, what was his word, optimism uh, on trying to solve these sort of thorny issues right now by just having a couple of meetings uh, each year because uh, these export control talks are now going to be happening at an assistant secretarial level um, and as I said did start today they're also going to keep uh, talking in terms of the commerce ministers the plan is for them to meet at least once face to face uh, each year uh, but as I said I think very much what China is waiting for is to um, see whether the US very much follows through uh, with what it's saying over in Beijing right now back to you yes the question is what can the Chinese offer the Americans as well because it's a two-way street and a lot of American companies have enormous restrictions on what they can do from the Chinese side, not just from the administration. Excellent, Sam. Uh, we'll, we'll carry on with this one a little bit later on. Thank you. Uh, Ramondo's visit comes as Chinese officials wrestle with a stagnating economy and a pullback. Well, that's stagnating. It's still apparently growing but around 4 or 5%. But anyway, uh, a pullback also in consumer demand. The Alliance uh, Economic Advisor, Chief Economic Advisor at that, Mohamed El Erian, told our US colleagues stimulus measures have so far disappointed and that China's growth model needs a sweeping overhaul. The market was hoping for more, but they didn't deliver more. It's not because they're not worried about economic growth. They're very worried about economic growth. They're very worried about youth unemployment over 20 percent. 
The reality is that they cannot use the old-fashioned stimulus measures. What they need is a fundamental revamp of their growth model, and that's not coming anytime soon. Right, there's a lot to digest in the uh, NN Group numbers as well, but they've reported first half net income of 600 million euros and an operating result of 1.4 billion euros. The Dutch insurer says it's on track to deliver its strategic growth plan up to 2025 and uh, that in spite of macro headwinds. Let's speak to David Knieber, who is the CEO of NN Group and joins us now. So really good to see you again. Thank you so much indeed for joining us. Well, my eye was immediately uh, drawn to the upguided guidance on the combined ratio. Obviously, the further away from 100 you are below, just for our viewers, the more profitable your business is. Down to 91, point, uh, 91 to 93. Uh, and in the Netherlands, non-life, down to 90.1. You must be very pleased with that projection and that uh, the way it's going on that front, David. Yes, good morning and, and, and great to be here again. Uh, yes, indeed, we had a very strong uh, half year. Our operating capital generation, which is also the main metric that, that we use and also our investors judges on, was up 15%. And indeed, to your point, the non-life company was one of the big contributors next to the, the growth in the European business. And uh, we used to have a 93 to 95 combined, uh, combined ratio. Uh, we lowered that to 91 to 93. Part of that, or a large part, is, to be honest, is also the accounting change. IFRS 17 was introduced. Um, so part of the, the lowering of the guidance is also the change in accounting. But also another part is uh, the strong underlying business trend that we see and that we also expect to, uh, to continue. So, so far, it's been a, a very strong half year for us. There's a bit of nuance in there as well on the operating and capital generation. And you make this point in your statement on I'm looking at your website now. Uh, OCG at Netherlands Life mainly uh, falling, cutting, uh, hasn't had a de decrease uh, down to adverse financial markets. Uh, and I note that you're, you're on track, as you say, for 2025, despite ongoing macroeconomic challenges. Do you just want to break down the key challenges that you find at the moment that are affecting that Netherlands Life and, and that could potentially uh, affect those 2025? targets. Right. So Netherlands Live, the primary driver of the, the capital generation, is also related to our investment result or in the financial markets. Now, clearly, that has been more under pressure. We've seen more volatility and, and, and uh, uh, in the market with rising uh, with rising rates. So that number has been a little bit under pressure. Now, the very good news is that we have a very diversified uh, business portfolio. And as I was saying, uh, Europe has been contributing very positively. Uh, our non-life business has been contributing positively, and they have been more than offsetting, let's say, some of the uh, uh, you you know, the impact of the financial markets on the life business. I would also argue it's a higher quality number, therefore, because the, the fact that uh, this 15% growth primarily comes from underwriting results, from fee business, and there's a lower dependency on, on financial markets is, uh, for a company like us, I think is, is good news because we have a lot more control, obviously, over our underwriting result and our fee business than we could control the, uh, the financial markets. So all in all, I think it's, it's a strong testament that the diversification of the model uh, works, and the 15% is, a, uh, I would argue, a higher higher quality number just because it is driven by insurance results and less by financial markets. Yeah, just on the investment side of the business or, or, or the financial markets themselves, higher rates are good for your industry, aren't they? Because it takes away the tourists for a start, which means you can increase premiums a bit more. Plus, you get better investment returns from uh, bond assets, albeit the ones you had on the book as well have diminished in value as well. But by and large, it, higher interest rates are good for this industry, aren't they? 
Absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, add to your point, they, uh, they help to, uh, uh, on our reinvestment yield. They help in pricing of, of products. There's, a, you know, potentially over time the, the, the ability to offer more guarantees into, uh, uh, into products. So, you know, from a, from a product point of view, from a customer point of view, higher rates is good news. Um, and also, you know, if, if you look at our, our solvency, our solvency is very strong with 201%. And that means that even if we would have some volatility in interest rates, you know, our sensitivities to either upward or downward uh, uh, are very low. So that means that we can also sustain a strong uh, solvency position. So the combination of a, a, you know, a very robust solvency and the ability to, to uh, offer new products and, and offer higher investment yields means indeed that higher rates, uh, you know, is, is positive for us as a company. David, good morning to you. Aribile here. You've previously spoken about underpenetration in this business. Um, have you felt that that has come through completely now, or is there still some more room here when, uh, with a greater client base? No, there is there's absolutely more room to to grow in the uh, in the European markets. Um, you know, we have seen that, you know, with the war in the Ukraine, many countries have double digit uh, uh, inflation. That means that purchasing power is is under pressure. We've seen some pension reforms. So actually, there's quite a bit of a short term uh, headwinds. And we have shown that despite that, the, the APE or, or the growth of our sales in the European business was up 9%. And that is a testament that we have very strong distribution channels. Uh, our tied agents with the buy which is more of a digital program where we have leads-driven, data-driven uh, uh, sales, has been performing very well. Uh, and that really goes back on the, on the back of this protection gap that we see. A lot of these markets, they don't have either the government or employees do not offer uh, strong protection for either disability or term or, or critical illness or these types of, of coverages. Uh, and we see a much lower penetration versus, for example, Western European markets. Uh, and that, therefore, that continues to offer a macro long-term opportunity for us. And I think with our distribution channels, we're very well positioned also to, uh, you know, to play in that, uh, in that protection space. Yeah, you certainly have to uh, develop yourselves or perhaps be seen slightly different because we speak about that macro portfolio or macro uh, insight as being on the one side very good for your business because you do have those higher rates, but that does diminish uh, a few pockets and you're saying that you've uh, made it despite that. Then how do you uh, create a, a, a product that then consumers look at and think, well, this is something we actually want to get into? Right. So what we in the European market seen is that, uh, as I was saying earlier, uh, governments have not been offering and, and are not planning to offer a lot of either pension savings or uh, protection products uh, around disability. Uh, employers uh, in a market like the Netherlands, employers often offer this collectively to their employees. But this is also not the case in many of these uh, markets. Now, the challenge is it is now up to individuals. It's actually quite risky because a lot of risks are being shifted to individuals, to, to individual families and households, and their awareness is not always very high. So it requires really not just a product, but it requires that you have distribution channels that are able to reach these families and are able to talk to them on, you know, what will happen if something happens in your family. And COVID has actually helped 
people spend a lot of time at home and they were at some point starting to wonder what will happen to me if I get sick or what will happen to me if somebody in my family gets uh, gets sick. Um, so I think the awareness because of COVID has increased, but it still requires strong distribution channels. And that's why I think with, you know, we're banking partners, we have our tight agents, we have strong relationship with uh, with brokers, we offer some direct uh, business. I think all these channels, we, we really need to, to actually have the conversation with our customer because once they are aware, they're, they're very inclined to say, okay, I need to do something. And the good news of protection products is it's a typically not a very expensive product. And that means that uh, even in a high inflation environment, people are able to afford these type of products. And that's why also you have seen that despite the, some of these headwinds, our sales has been up uh, 9% in the first half year. Um, there's, there's various things I want to ask you. I don't know where to go, chat GPT, GPT or climate. I'm going to go climate. I think that's the bigger issue at the moment. You've launched a 300 million euro investment fund for infrastructure and climate solutions, but you're also tightening up your proprietary <coughs> investments in the oil and gas sector as well. What do you say, David, to those people who look at those macroeconomic challenges that you have mentioned in your result and say, that is why we can't afford to go too fast on climate change. That's why the net zero needs to be tempered because we need oil and gas because of the security risks as well. What do you say to people who say you shouldn't tighten up too quickly on those investments? Right. Well, I mean, it, it's a very complex discussion, obviously. And uh, what we're not saying is that we're excluding oil, oil and gas. In fact, we still invest in oil and gas companies. But we do have very strict requirements around that. And so we prefer to invest in companies in that are either aligned or aligning with the Paris Agreement. So that essentially means that, that we still need oil and gas for the short term. But these are companies that are committing to, to 2050, the Paris Agreement, but have also set into media targets, for example, towards 2030, and are companies that, are, in our view, have credible plans to, over time, reduce their, uh, their footprint. These are the companies that we like to invest in, and these are also the companies that we engage with to see whether they're on track and whether it's, uh, the plans are, uh, are credible enough. Um, we are excluding, uh, you know, some of the more unconventional oil and gas companies like, uh, you know, Arctic drilling, uh, fracking. These are the types of things that we, we prefer to, to stay away from. Um, but it's very clear, not just the oil and gas industry, but all industries need time to go through this transition. And, and we are there to make sure as a long-term shareholder that we can support that transition and, and engage with them on how to, to do this in the, in the best way. And that goes very well hand in hand with also bringing good returns and dividends for our um, for our members and our customers good man david really know how busy you are today and we learn a lot as ever we'll do chat gpt next time i know you're doing a lot on ai as well so thank you very much indeed for uh, finding the time to speak to harabila and myself david kniba who is the ceo of nn group thank you sir Still coming up on Squawkbox this morning, Chinese carmaker byd reports record deliveries for the quarter even as margins fall We'll be taking a deeper look into the Chinese EV sector. We'll also be getting Swedish GDP data. That's at 8 a.m. CET. And taking a deeper dive into the Scandinavian economy as it grapples with a tumultuous housing sector. And helping us make sense of all today's top headlines will be Bob Parker, Senior Advisor at the International Capital Markets Association.
Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. Arabile, I've got a problem. What's the problem, Steve? <laughs> where, the... where should I start? <laughs> so um, I'm going on an outside broadcast at the end of this week. It's quite a big one. It's yeah. a lovely one. It's yeah. very um, well attended. I, I won't say what guests we've got yet, but they are amazing, some of them. Uh, some of them are pretty good. Um, and um, <laughs> I'm going to be there all weekend. This is over in Italy. Yeah. And I'm hoping that my flights will be fine. There is a big problem, though. Missing a cameraman at the moment because he's stuck in North Africa. And unfortunately, getting in is going to be a little tougher because that delay... So I'm, I'm slightly worried about the, yeah, the, the, the problems of me getting out. I mean, it's on Thursday. It's not a problem. But, but, but I need him in first yes. to pick up the equipment because he's on a social and, and then to come out again. So I'm, I'm a little bit worried. Uh, yeah, I might have to do it with my iPhone on a selfie stick. <laughs> you can take me with you. I don't I'll mind going. with top US and European politicians. <laughs> yeah, so, so, tell me about this. Um, so, yeah, that's my problem anyway. But it's, it's, it's a lot worse for a lot of people because flights to and from the UK have been heavily disrupted after a technical problem hit the country's air traffic control system. Uh, the na- you can't use a camera, can you? I can. Oh, okay, perfect. You're coming with me then. <laughs> uh, the National Air Traffic... Uh, Service says it has now fixed the issue which affected the automatic processing of flight plans but warned of the potential for continued impact on flights. Moving on, prices in British stores rose at their slowest pace in nearly a year in August. Well, that is good news, isn't it? Uh, The British retail consortium said annual shop price inflation eased to 6.9%. Still pretty long, to be fair. I mean, that's a huge figure, 6.9% with food inflation falling nearly two percentage points, and non-food inflation holding steady at 4.7%. Quick word on this one as well. Um, Research from the London School of Economics earlier this year suggested almost a third of the rise in UK food prices, though. And and a lot of you are not going to like this one. A lot of you, because half of you voted for this in the UK, but I'm going to say it again because this is research from the London School of Economics earlier this year suggested almost a third of the rise of UK food prices since the end of 2019 could be attributed to post Brexit trade barriers. Uh, and that's the academics saying it as well. That's their research as well. You can say, oh, that's rubbish. It's nothing to do with Brexit. But if the evidence is presented to me, all I can do is present it to you as well. But we do have a, a slightly worse inflation problem, I would suggest, not dramatically, in the United yeah. Kingdom than others, which is creating pressure for everyone who's borrowing, certainly for the Chancellor of Exchequer and certainly for Andrew Bailey at the Bank of England. I think for, for Andrew Bailey, he'll be... I mean, I don't know how much he, he looks at this data specifically, but he perhaps would be happier with a figure where you're seeing fresh food inflation as well as ambient food inflation drop off to around 11 or 11.3. I didn't know what ambient food well, was. it means that it's it can stored be stored at, at room, room temperature. temperature. I, read, I read that now, but <laughs> ambient food, I thought that was just when you're picking something lovely, you know. <laughs> We're all would have like a bowl like of cherries or, exactly. a, or a little salmon and cream cheese blini. I thought that was ambient food. No, clearly no? not. No, right? okay. so, so with that falling off to 11.3 from around 14 or 12, percent that is at least some sort of respite the, the thing is though is that it's not falling down as quickly as they perhaps would have hoped no all this oh, inflation absolutely. right and that's that's perhaps the, the hard part 
earlier, let's, let's not forget we had those PMI numbers here in the UK, which dipped off from around 50.8 to around, I think it was 48 or 47. Yes, and so the that fall in inflation is being accompanied by concerns about recession, which is yeah. exactly the equation that we talk about on a daily basis with a lot of people. Good news for you, though. How the so? man who comes in well coiffured and, and smelling great every day. <laughs> Prices for toiletries and cosmetics, as many important components became cheaper. That is a big win. <laughs> That is an absolutely big win. Um, but there are still enormous uh, problems. We're talking about a 6.9% figure when, yeah. I mean, I know this is only one component of UK inflation, but the UK inflation target is still 2%. And huge pressure, as I say, on just about everyone, really, but especially the Bank of England governor, Andrew Bailey, um, to just work out whether they're going to just push it too far on the interest rate front or whether they've done enough now already. Again, every bit of data absolutely pivotal ahead of the next interest rate decision. Uh, and indeed, as I mentioned the Chancellor of Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt, who um, had hoped if inflation had come down quicker, which his Prime Minister had promised would do, which I, I would still argue is very little to do with the Prime Minister. It's about the monetary policy rather than his fiscal policy, unless he was to be overly indulgent, then of course that would create more inflation. They'd hoped to be able to have a, a bit of a giveaway uh, pre-election, which has to be held pretty much at some stage next year. You could probably just tail into the start of 2025, but you won't. Uh, and that isn't going to go down well necessarily with the Tory faithful. No, it certainly won't. And they'll be looking at this going, well, you've made things a little bit more difficult for us, especially, especially since about a year ago or so, September last year was that fateful time which we won't mention. Oh, you're UK talking politics. about the, the, um, Liz Truss and yes. Kwasi Kwarteng. Yes. Who, uh, <laughs> Well, it was, it was a, how can I put it politely? It was a balls up. There you go. I won't put it politely. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and, and the thing is here, there were two mistakes. There was one, the actual deed itself, which yes. you might argue was a mistake or wasn't, actually should have driven, would have driven the UK economy had it been delivered properly. And I think it was yes. the execution was that perhaps that was the biggest problem because the markets were blindsided. Yeah. And if you didn't have the markets on side for what was going on, then we saw obviously the buyer strike and the concern around the UK guilt market as well. So it may have been the actual deed itself, which I think is very arguable, but certainly the execution of that was perhaps more... Uh, unambiguous in terms of um, yeah, in terms of uh, the ramifications. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.